I'm, in, I'm looking forward to getting back into this book this morning. So we're going to be in Revelation 20. Um, we've covered the first three verses. This chapter as a whole deals with judgment. That's the immediate context. The judgment of Satan, his ultimate destruction, which is an eternal destruction in the first ten verses. And then we're going to see in the remainder of the chapter the ultimate or eternal destruction of the wicked, the wicked dead, death and hell. Hell is not the end for those contained therein. Death and hell are raised and judged and then eternally destroyed, not annihilated, eternally destroyed in the lake of fire. So the context is the judgment of Satan, the father of lies, and all liars, the wicked dead. That's the immediate context. But sandwiched within that, we have a glimpse and some light shed upon the millennial reign of Christ or the earth's Sabbath rest. This is detailed greatly throughout the Old Testament. We're going to be talking about some things that we can know about the character of the millennium based on clear teaching in the Old Testament. First three verses we covered talked about the incarceration of Satan. He's incarcerated for a thousand years. That number a thousand is mentioned six times here in these verses. So there's no reason to think a thousand means anything other than a thousand. Anybody who teaches otherwise there is wrong. They're just wrong. They're not interpreting the Bible as the common man would interpret it. Does, that, a thousand doesn't need any interpretation here. It's clear. We see the incarceration of Satan that he is bound for a thousand years. We talked about that. We talked about him, his connection to that old serpent in Genesis 3 as revealed here. We looked at the nature of the underworld, hell, paradise, Tartarus, the abyss. And um, you can go back and listen to those messages. The, the last one was put up online this morning. But when we get to verses 4... Through six, we have an aside. Aside. The text steps away from the destruction of Satan, the interval between his incarceration and his final destruction. And in this context, we see some commentary on an issue already expounded greatly in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures. We learn that this kingdom promised in the Old Testament time and time again, laid out in specific detail, we learn of its duration. It's a thousand years. I've had somebody say to me before, how can you believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ just because that number appears in one passage in the New Testament? How can you base a doctrine on one verse in the New Testament? Well, first of all, a thousand doesn't appear one time. It's six times over several verses. And secondly, all Revelation 20 does with regard to the millennium is give us a time period. All of the details, the necessities, the characters thereof are laid out very clearly in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11 is a great place to go. Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to talk more about those passages. But as I was thinking about this millennial period, Revelation 24 through 6. Let's just go ahead and read the passage. 
after Satan is bound for a thousand years so that he should deceive the nations no more, John says in verse 4, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Is there any reason to think that means anything other than it says? But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Not once, but twice. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. So in verse 7, we, we pick up the story with the devil, that old serpent, and what happens at the end of the millennium. But we're told that um, uh, Satan is bound until the thousand years should be fulfilled in verse 3. These thousand years must be fulfilled. This millennial reign of Christ, this kingdom, this Sabbath rest for the present creation must be fulfilled. And this is highlighted here. So we're going to talk a little bit about these verses today. I will continue into it probably next week and beyond because I want to look at some Old Testament chapters. But as I was thinking about these things and thinking about why a millennial reign of Christ here on earth in this present creation, must be fulfilled, I was thinking about the creation week. I was thinking about God's work. God labored and toiled for six days, and then he sanctified the seventh day, and he rested. I thought about the creation rest. I thought about how the Bible talks about how we're, uh, there's a rest that remains for us. And then I was kind of strangely, in my mind, taken to the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, you see Israel's history as it begins to down spiral from the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived him. When Israel was probably closest to following the Lord as they should have in all of her history. Now we see in Judges chapter 2 that they were disobedient even in the days of Joshua. But that's when Israel was closest to doing what God had ordained them to do. Now they will eventually... Do God's law right, observe it rightly, and that will be in the millennium. Those things must be fulfilled. That's why there's going to be a temple. That's why there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium. I have no problem with that. That doesn't contradict anything for me. That's not a logical fallacy with me. God gave a law that was to be observed, that was to be taught as a witness to the nations. Israel never did it. That was their covenant. So they will come to a place, there will be a place where they do do it. It must be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law, therefore we're not under the law. Israel one day will do the law as a nation as they were commanded to do. For the reasons they were commanded to do it. Not for personal righteousness, but to be a testimony to the world of the true God, the God of Israel. So I don't have an issue with those things we see in the book of Ezekiel. But during the days of the judges... 
Israel would fall into sin. They would fall into sin. Then they would be conquered. Then they would be oppressed. Just like Israel will be in the days of Antichrist. The cycle you see in the judges takes as its full and final form in the days we're talking about. Israel turns away from God. She's turned away from God. An oppressor comes and oppresses her. That happens with Antichrist. Then what does Israel do? She cries out to the Lord for a deliverance. Just as Israel does at the end of the tribulation. When they recognize they've been wrong all this time. What does God do? He raises up a Messiah or a judge that comes and delivers them. This is what we see throughout the book of Judges. Sadly, however, Israel, a judge comes, delivers them. This local Messiah judges them for a period of time. And then they forget about it. They forget all about it and go right back to their wicked ways. Not just like they did before, but worse than they did before. So it's a downward spiral. And it shows us prophetically what ultimately happens to all man-made nations that are founded on principles of God. We as the United States have done the same thing that Israel did. Same thing. That's why the best form of government possible is not what we have here today or what our country was founded to be. It's the best possible in light of man's fallen nature. But what we need is a divine monarchy. We don't need a democracy or a republic. We need a divine monarchy with a righteous king, Jesus Christ being the Messiah. So we're looking for that. But after this judge would judge, you would see there in the book of Judges, and the land had rest. So following this deliverance, there was a period of rest. And so following this deliverance from the ultimate judge that will come to deliver Israel, there's a period of rest. So I, was, I hearkened back to seeing that time and time again to the book of Judges. And Judges is a picture of Israel's story and her deliverance ultimately. God teaches us through history. He teaches us. He points us to the future through the events that happen all around us. Things happen all around us that point to the very things that are written here in God's Word. We're just too blind to see. We don't have eyes to see and we don't have ears to hear. And we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Who knows what the name of the book of Judges is in Hebrew? Anybody? In the Hebrew Bible, it's shoftim. It comes from, it's the plural of the word shofet. It means judge. Judges. God raised up judges. A Messiah is not only a king, he's a judge, the Messiah. He comes to judge, and he comes to deliver the people, Israel. And as I was thinking of these things, I didn't intend to preach on the book of Judges this morning, but it's kind of a nice book to be reminded of. I was looking at chapter 2. I was going back to find some of these phrases where it said the land had rest. And I was looking at chapter 2, and I think... It's worth reading this morning because it is a mirror image of where we were and where we are as a nation. You see, God gives us His revelation through the people of Israel. You know, the Bible was either written by good Jews, bad Jews, or it was written by God. That's the only options. You know, a lot of people say it was written by men. Okay, well, these were Jewish men. That's obvious historically. So it was either written by good Jews, bad Jews, or it was written by God. 
Well, if it was written by good Jews, they said that the scriptures were written by the inspiration of God. Good people don't lie. So if it was written by good men claiming that it was written by God, then these good men would be liars. So good men are not liars. Okay? If it was written by bad Jews, then I'm trying to figure out why a great part of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Judges, is written in condemnation of the Jewish people. Bad people don't write bad things about themselves. They lift themselves up. So it's either good Jews, bad Jews, or the God of Israel that wrote it. I'm going to go with the God of Israel. He wrote it. And he wrote it to teach us about his character. And his relationship with Israel reveals to us that character acted out. As to Israel, so do the nations of the world. And God gave us his word. And he gives us the history and the story of Israel. These things confirm each other. It's two lesson books. We would do well to learn by them, but we don't. We're very critical of the Jewish people. Oh, they, how could they not recognize their Messiah? How could they not recognize Jesus? It's so plain in the scriptures. And we're quick to boast against the natural branches as Gentiles. We're quick to criticize. Well, they had God's word and they didn't believe it. They didn't see it. We here in America have God's word and we have the history of Israel. Over 4,000 years of history confirmed here in these scriptures. And we don't listen to either one of those teachers. So we should look in the mirror before we boast against the natural branches. Now, I love Israel because they're God's covenant people. And God made a promise to him. But I'm not so naive as to think that Israel is good. It's not. Most of what we see happening behind the scenes in Israel today with regard to our country's relationship with Israel, the embassy, people wanting to build the temple, all of that, those things are encouraging and should be to us as Christians because they confirm the word of God and they show us that the end is near. And for us, the end is a good thing. But in terms of good and evil, these things are sinister. These things are wicked. The government of Israel today, you may like Netanyahu, you may like Trump's policies with Israel, but please understand that these things have a sinister purpose. They are working to usher in the Antichrist and his betrayal of Israel. What Israel builds today in the land is being built for destruction. And Israel's problem is she thinks all of this stuff she has done by her power. It's being built to be taken away. Any policy our country has that is good to Israel, in the immediate future we can be thankful for, but understand that ultimately it has a sinister purpose. Our president's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He needs Jesus. You should pray for that. So he can't be trusted. He can't be trusted with Israel. He can't be trusted with the word of God. And there are people and counselors in his ears that work for Antichrist. Some days I wake up and think our president and vice president are servants of the Antichrist. I really do. I don't trust them. How can you trust somebody that says it's completely okay when asked about what he thinks about one of his political opponents who's running for president, that puny little man. I, 
remember his name, just a puny little fellow. A fairy of a guy, the guy that's married, supposedly, to a man. Don't know his name, don't care what it is, actually. But when asked, the president was asked this week what he thinks about this man campaigning with his quote-unquote husband. And does he think it's a good thing to see these things normalized? And our president said he's completely fine with it. I know there are people out here that disagree. I think, that, I think it's great. Those are his words. Come on. Wake up. These things have a sinister purpose. And, but they all are under operating under the sovereign hand of God and they have an ultimate end. It's the ultimate of end of Israel that gives us an appreciation for them. But it ought to motivate us as, law, as, as people in these last days to be watchmen and to warn them of what is to come. If I witness to the Jew and don't warn him of what awaits that nation, am I really being a faithful watchman over the nation of Israel? I'm not. But in Judges chapter 2, a lot of what we see is a mirror image of what we have here in this country. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, that was the camp of Israel when she entered the land, not far from Jericho, to Bochim. Bochim is from the verb bacha in Hebrew, which means to weep. Bochim means the weepers. And the angel of the Lord, when you see the angel of the Lord, this is that person of the Godhead that can be seen by human eyes. The angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Yeshua HaMashiach. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God never breaks his covenants. And you shall make no league or treaty with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Why didn't you obey me? And this is not very long. The campaign to deliver, to conquer Canaan, we know based upon the age that Caleb gives about his life when he's given his inheritance, took about seven years. So from Jericho, all the conquering of the land until it was appointed or allotted to the tribes was about seven years. So we're talking about minimum seven, eight years, maybe absolute minimum seven to ten years after Israel entered the land. Could have been a little later than that. We know Joshua lived a, a, a period of time after. But they were told to kick out the inhabitants. It wasn't finished at the end of those seven years. The tribes were given their land and were told to go finish the job. They didn't do it. So the angel of the Lord comes up to Israel and rebukes them. Wherefore, verse 3, I also said, I will, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. If you go back to the book of Joshua in chapter 23, God told Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. If you don't obey my voice, I will leave them there as a judgment against you. So God's just doing exactly what he said he would do. They weren't in the land because God couldn't drive them out. God said he would drive them out and he would be with the people and told them to do it. Man had a responsibility. They didn't do it. So God told them, if you don't do it, I'll just leave them here and they'll be a thorn in your side. They'll be for judgment. So God doing what he said he would do. And it came to pass, verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words 
unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means they wept or they weep or weepers can be a noun. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. So this happened in the days of Joshua. Yes, we, we see in verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Israel served God during the days of Joshua, but not completely. Even in that day, they were disobedient, and God rebuked them. Even Israel at its best was disobedient and overlooked something that God said was important, but they thought, ah, this is not that big of a deal. How many things does God make very clear are important in His Word, and we in the modern church act as if it's no big deal? Homosexuality, abortion, adultery, divorce, all of these things. Ah, it's no big deal. Even though God says it. God says He hates divorce. He hates it. But it's no big deal. Over 50% of marriages in the church end in divorce. God says he hates murder. Ah, it's no big deal. You know, uh, children are, unborn children are human beings. We're pro-life. But you know, if a woman's raped or there's incest or the life of the mother, then that's okay. It's not a life at that point. The pro-life movement is full of hypocrites, my friends. Our president's a hypocrite. He's not pro-life. If you are pro-life, you believe that an unborn child is an innocent human being. So I don't care if a woman's raped. I don't care if she's the victim of incest. I don't care about the health of the mother. It doesn't matter. The, 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 the unborn child is alive. And we have the responsibility, if we are pro-life, to do everything that's possible to save innocent life. Now, rape and incest is a non-starter anyway. The number of women that actually get pregnant from violent rape is almost nil. That's a non-starter, statistically. Statistically. I'm sick and tired of these politicians who actually say something good about abortion that we would all love a lot of people to say, and then they backtrack and apologize a few days later. There was a politician down, I think Louisiana is going through a, an anti-abortion law. I'm glad to see these laws popping up that don't make exceptions for rape and incest. The key will be when the Supreme Court rules that law unconstitutional, the key to see how pro-life these state legislatures really are is will they stand up and defy the Supreme Court and say this is a law we have passed, this is what the people of this state want, and we don't care, we hold you in contempt. You have no power according to the Constitution. Amendment 10, to tell us what we can and can't do in terms of passing laws. The key will be to see whether these people are really, how, how much they're willing to fight. I think the courts in this country need to be held in contempt. I think Congress needs to be held in contempt. I hold the courts of the United States in contempt, and I hold my Congress in contempt. And I don't, I don't care if it's publicly said. Wicked, vile people. And we as a church look at their wickedness and we make excuses for it if it's got a Republican by its name. We exaggerate and condemn everything if it's got a Democrat by its name. 
Because we're like the people here. We take things that God says are clear and a big deal, and we say it's no big deal. That was the people of Israel here. But they did something we don't do. And I'm sorry to get off topic, but we've got to, as a preacher, I've got to keep these messages relevant to the day we're living in. Relevant. So sorry if I get off topic. We've gone into every book of the Bible at least twice on this tour of, of Revelation. But Israel did something here we don't do when confronted with God's truth. They wept. They wept over their sin. When's the last time the church wept over its sin? When's the last time the church wept over the abominations that rule this country and cried out to God in repentance? Who are we to judge Israel? At least they wept. I mean, they they got away from their sin, but at least they were broken for a time over it. But these things happen in the days of Joshua. And then Joshua dies, verses 9 and 10. A lot of times it's really sad where God has great men and uses great men and women to do great ministries, missions-wise, evangelism, all kinds of things throughout history. But the people that follow are always looking to the men and not looking to God. And oftentimes, if the men could see that they were looking to them after their death, they would rebuke them and roll over in their grave. Plenty of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, and others, if they were risen up from the grave and could see the people out here that attached themselves to their names, they would rebuke them sharply. These men were not about uplifting themselves. But that's what people do. They, They look to men and not to God. And so when the men die that are used of God... The people often turn and compromise. It's an old, old story. Look, if you know human nature and you know history in the Bible, we can predict exactly what's going to happen with this presidency. We can predict exactly what's going to happen in 2020. Maybe not the details. We know the direction this country's going if we know human nature and history. Human nature can tell you a lot. When there's a lot of fake news out there and you want to know the truth, consider human nature. Consider history. It does repeat itself because men never learn. The only thing men ever learn from history, as we see with Israel here, is that men never learn from history. So Joshua was buried, verse 10, and also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So this generation was not completely obedient. They served the Lord but they didn't pass it on in such a way that it would endure with the subsequent generations. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim, or, or, or uh, Baalim, which is Baal, or the gods, the false gods. And they forsook the God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoke the Lord to anger. This wasn't secret. This was open. Just like the open sin in our country today. Sin that afflicts a society begins in secret. It begins with shame. And eventually it's open. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's always been homosexual perversion in this life. And in history, there's always been women murdering their babies. But it used to be done in secret and with shame. Now it's declared openly. 
And this provokes the Lord to anger. God is provoked to anger right now over this country. And we talk about making it great. Come on. And the anger of the Lord, verse 14, was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wheresoever, whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had said, just like he said in Joshua 23, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. God does what he says. We say that, we preach that, but we think it doesn't apply to us here in America. We think that we're somehow the greatest country on earth and we're exempt from it. No, we're not. God does what he says. And God didn't make promises to America to preserve this country like he did to Israel. There's not a guaranteed end of blessing for us as there is for Israel. I can't stand it when I see flags. And, and if I'm stepping on anybody's toes here, please forgive me. I see people that fly flags outside their house. I want a flagpole. I've got a lot of great historical flags that make a very bold statement that I'd love to fly. I've just never got around to it. It's a pain to put the cement in the ground and all that. But I see people flying two flags sometimes, the American flag and the Christian flag. That's great. And they probably don't even think about this, but it bugs me when I see the Christian flag below the American flag. I'm not an American first, a Christian second. If I do eventually put that flagpole up in my yard, I'm going to put the Christian flag on top if I put two flags, and then I'm going to put an upside-down American flag below it because I'm a Christian first, and secondly, my country is in distress because it has forsaken the Lord. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the people were greatly distressed. The Lord raised up judges, shoftim, deliverers, Messiahs, those that were anointed to deliver Israel, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. That's exactly what the Messiah does when he comes back. He delivers Israel out of the hand of the ultimate spoiler, which is the Antichrist or the Assyrian. Yet, verse 17, they would not hearken unto their judges, but went a-whoring after other gods. Not, they didn't worship. They went a-whoring after other gods. We've gone a-whoring in this country and bowed themselves unto them they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord but they did not so that's us that's us and when the Lord raised them up judges then the Lord delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them God had mercy he felt sorry for his covenant people. When it says it repented the Lord, the Lord didn't repent of evil. God never, to, for us to repent of our sins is to change our mind about sin. To repent is to acknowledge that what we think is okay is not and to change our mind about it. A born-again believer that's repented and believed in Jesus Christ has a change of mind about sin. God doesn't change his mind. When it repents, it repents the Lord is very different than man repenting of his sins. God changes his way or is willing to change his way because of his mercy. But he never changes his mind. He never changed his mind 
about the things he expected Israel to do when they turned from him. But he changed his way. And he would deliver them and raise up judges, even though they kept doing the same thing over and over again. God is a merciful God. He's very patient and long-suffering. Verse 19, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. So it's a downward spiral. In following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded unto their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I will not henceforth drive out from before of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily. Neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Exactly what he said he would do in Joshua 23, 12 and 13 when he was addressing the people. At the end of Joshua. So this is the story of Israel over and over in the book of Judges. And it's a prophetic picture of the ultimate story of Israel. Israel invited a curse upon itself when... Collectively as a nation, it stood before Pilate, and Pilate offered to give them Barabbas or Jesus, whom he found innocent. Pilate said, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. He's done nothing worthy of death. I'll wash my hands. The people gathered that day and invoked a curse upon themselves. Let his blood be upon us and our children. One of the dumbest things Israel ever said. The other dumb thing was at Kadesh Barnea when they went to send the spies into the land, and they said, you... God brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. God said, okay, you said it. I didn't say it. You will die here. And that generation perished. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And that's been the story of Israel since the first century. doesn't justify it, but it's a story. They've invoked a curse. They've turned from God. We ought to love and appreciate Israel and to point these things out to her. To love the Jews, to point this out. To repent and be delivered of these things. But ultimately, God will raise up a judge, a righteous judge, who will hear the cry of Israel. And when he comes and delivers her from the spoiler, she won't ever go back the other way again. She'll follow the way of the Lord forever. And that's what we see in, in, in the millennium. So judges is kind of, prof, of a prophetic picture of God's plan with Israel, but it doesn't end that way. See, in Judges, we're told in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's why it kept going down. That's America today. But when the true king comes, it won't be that way. The deliverer will come, his saints with him, and Israel will serve the Lord as a nation as she was supposed to. And these things will be fulfilled. As you start moving through the book of Judges, the first judge that is raised up is the nephew of Caleb. Remember Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies? They were the only two that were over 20 years old that survived the wilderness wanderings and were able to enter into the land. So I think Caleb was in his 80s when he came into the land. Caleb had a nephew. His name was Othniel. Obviously, Caleb's brother died in the wilderness. So his nephew was one that was 
a young child when Israel rebelled, and then he grew up and came into the land. He was probably elder. And so one of these youth that survived was the first judge. You know, those that, uh, I don't know why I was just reminded about this, but uh, Othniel was Caleb's nephew, and he married Caleb's daughter. Caleb gave him his daughter to wife. I don't know why I was thinking about this. Everybody's talking about, well, abortion's got to be okay if it's rape or incest. Did you know that Moses and Aaron were children of incest? <laughs> if you go back to Exodus 6, it says here, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this. Let me double check. But in Exodus 6, I think it's verse, yeah, verse 20. And Amram took him Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife. And she bare him Aaron and Moses. So Mo Moses' father married his aunt. That's incest, according to our definition. And two children of incest that were not aborted were Moses and Aaron. I would say they were pretty important people in the history of Israel. Used by God to write the first five books of the Bible, Moses was. So what is all this talk about we've got to abort a baby that's the product of incest? It's ridiculous. If Israel fought like that back in the day, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have the first five books of the Bible and a whole lot else. But the first judge was Othniel. He was a nephew of Caleb. And he was one that went in and very quickly and easily conquered those giants around Hebron. Remember the people that were spies? They came out of the land and Joshua and Caleb were like, look, there's some strong cities, there's some giants there, but we can take this land. God is with us. And the spies were like, no way. We saw the children of Anak there. We saw the giants. There's no way we can do this. God's going to destroy us. And then we're told later that this fear over these giants that dwelt along, around Hebron was just a little footnote. When you read, it, when you read the, the story of the conquering of the land, there is no detail. Oh, by the way, Joshua went in there and killed the sons of Anak and the giants. And then we learn later that Caleb, when he inherited his land and gave part of it to his son-in-law, Othniel, says they just went in there and took it. No big deal. So this first judge had destroyed some of those giants that the people were so afraid of. And after we're told at the end of his reign that he helped deliver Israel from this wicked king of Mesopotamia, and it says in verse 11 of chapter 3, and the land had rest. 40 years. So following this deliverance, there was always a period of rest for Israel. And that's going to be the same with Israel in her ultimate fulfillment. When the deliverer comes and delivers her from the spoiler, then there's a period of rest. And that's what the millennium is. You've got to be careful when you're reading the book of Judges. Sometimes you'll see this phrase in verse 11, and the land had rest 40 years. And you're thinking, okay, this, this wicked king, if you go back and you look at it, um, we see that he conquered Israel and, and oppressed her for eight years, and then the judge delivered the people. Then there was 40 years of rest. That's not what it's saying there in the Hebrew. It, the chronology doesn't work that way. So anytime you see a verse like verse 11 in Judges, it's just a side note. And the land had rest. Pretend like there's a comma there after the, after the word rest. And the land had rest. Pause, 40 years. So that 40 years is the entire period, not just the period of rest. It would include the eight years of oppression. So the years of deliverance 
would be 32. The whole period of Othniel's judgeship was 40 years. So the deliverance and the rest go together. They're inseparable. It's the same with Israel as a nation. Its deliverance and the millennial rest are inseparable. You can't separate them out and act as if the millennium is some spiritual thing that's being fulfilled right now. You can't do it. It's one and the same. So that, if you, if, you, if you acknowledge that in those statements throughout Judges, then the chronology fits biblically between Moses and uh, the dividing of the kingdom. And it all works together. When, Ju- when Paul talks about the period of Judges, like 400 and some years, he's not talking about the book of Judges. He's going all the way back to the days of Moses. You know, Moses was a judge. He wasn't a king. He was a judge. So the land had rest. The rest was tied to the, de- the, the, the suffering and the deliverance. The millennial rest is tied to Israel's suffering in the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, and her deliverance at the second coming. You can't separate. So the book of Judges foreshadows the millennium. It foreshadows. It's history pointing to the things we're talking about. We read about Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and Barak. I've been reading through the book of, book of Judges. I've just seen some things that kind of spoke to me as I was thinking about where we are as a nation. At the end of chapter 5, after God delivers uh, Israel from the Midianites, Deborah and Barak sing a song of praise unto the Lord. And it, it points to the future of Israel. The key in verse 20 They fought from heaven. The stars and their courses fought against Sisera. So this talks about Israel's deliverance from Jabin, the king of Hotsor, and his mighty general who commanded, I think it was 900 chariots of iron. God delivered them. Israel didn't have chariots, but she won a victory. And this was, in this song, we have a prophetic picture of Israel's ultimate deliverance. And the mighty general fled the field of battle. He was very feared. And God would have given Barak the victory over this general. And Barak would have had the glory. But he didn't believe the promise and told Deborah, I'll only go if you come with me. And Deborah said, okay, I'll go with you. But when it's all said and done, a woman's going to get the glory and not you. Okay. So she went. Well, this mighty general Sisera fled the field of battle. And he entered into a tent. There were some people that were descended from uh, Moses' father-in-law that lived in the land. And they were friendly to Jabin and the people of Hatsor. And he turned aside into this tent, weary, and there was a young lady there. The man of the house wasn't there. Her name was Jael. And he said, can I come in and hide here and get some refreshment? So she gave him some food and gave him milk to drink. And he laid down on her tent floor to take a nap. Does anybody know what happened? (laughs) She took a tent stake and drove it through his temple into the ground and killed him. And a woman got the glory for killing this wicked, powerful general. At the end of Deborah's song and Barak's song, they talk about the death of Sisera, this general. Verse 31 of chapter 5. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them love him, that love him be as the sun which he goeth forth in his might. And the land had rest, comma, 40 years. 
Let what was done to Sisera, his head hammered to the ground, let that be, let that happen to all God's enemies. Let all thy enemies perish like this. This ought to be our desire as well. That these wicked people in our government, if they won't repent and turn to Christ, let be unto them as was done to this general. A tent stake through the temple into the ground. When are we going to stand up and admit this and quit being afraid to say things like this? Let it be upon them. And if our president won't repent, humble himself and turn to Jesus, so let this be upon him as well. Amen? Amen. So let it be upon all the enemies of the Lord. I just see these verses, and, and, and we don't think they mean anything, but they do. The Old Testament is relevant. Then we, we go to the story of Gideon. Another amazing story. Starts in verses uh, chapter 7 and 8. Remember, Israel got this army together to go defeat the Midianites, and God whittled it down. God said, that's too many people. I don't need that many people to go fight this army. And so Gideon told the people, if there's any of you out here that are afraid, go home. A lot of people went home. And God said, that's still too many. We've got to whittle it down. So they, there was a test. They went down to drink at the springs. You can supposedly go to the springs at the foot of the mountains of Gilboa in Israel to see. I never did take Eric there. It's kind of a little bit of a tourist trap. I don't like it. Um, but uh, the men went down to drink. And only 300 of them were selected by God to do this work against a mighty army. And it was based upon how they drank out of the water. Does anybody remember how that was? Some got down and did what? They, they were thirsty. They got down on their knees. All they could think about was the water and they sucked it up like a dog. Not paying attention to anything that was going on around them. And then there were others that got down on their knee and scooped up the, the water and lapped it from their hand. What was the difference between the two? One was vigilant, the other was not. One was aware of what was taking place, the other was not. And the ones that weren't paying attention, God sent them on home. And out of that whole crew, only 300 people were vigilant and aware. I wish I would have thought about this story when I was in Israel. Eric and I did an Aikido demonstration in the public square in Netanya. And we shared with some Israeli soldiers that were there. And they were trying to tell us that none of this stuff would work. And there's no way you can defend yourself against some of these terrorist attacks. Because these terrorists just sneak up on you from behind. What they'll do is they'll come up behind a soldier with a knife. And they're taught to just grab him from behind and to stick the knife right down between his collarbone and his shoulder. Right into the lung. And just stab. And they'll just walk up. Doesn't take a lot of skill. While a guy's got his back to him, just go up and stab him like this. In fact, one young, young uh, Palestinian tried that there in Hebron just a few hours before we arrived that day. And he took three rounds to the chest. So somebody else was paying attention and got the guy before he could puncture the other soldier's lung. But they were like, there's no way you can defend against this. I said, oh, yeah, there is. I said, what you guys ought to be doing is paying attention to what's going on around you. You know, there's an easy way to prevent somebody from coming up behind you at your post. Very easy way. I've just prevented somebody from getting me from behind. I'll stand against a wall. The problem is you guys are playing around on your phone. 
You're distracted and you're not paying attention. I wish I would remember this story. This would have been a good story to bridge into the word of God. <clears throat> Awareness. That's one of the easiest forms of self-defense. You don't have to have a black belt or be able to do a head high kick or roll or flip and fall to do that. But God chose the ones. He used the ones that were vigilant. I think there's a lesson for us now in this day and time. God will use those of us that are aware and vigilant. That means we're not Republican Kool-Aid drinkers. We don't think everything Trump does is right. We don't make excuses for him when he clearly does things that are wrong. It means we'll call it like we see it. And we're aware that all of these things are working toward a greater purpose. We're aware that based upon the Bible, America can't be great again. Apart from repentance. And even that is bound by the consummation of all things that has already been written. So it was vigilant and aware people that God used, and it was a small number. It was a very small number of people that were used to shake off the tyranny of Britain and bring independence to this nation. We often think that all the people were behind everyone. No, not the case. Only about a third of the American population supported the revolution. And a lot of that was lip service. It was really only about 3% of the population that was actively involved in terms of fighting to overthrow the tyranny of Britain. Only about 3% of the population. And yet we think that we don't have the numbers and the church is weak and the church is small. We can't fight this stuff. We're just going to sit back and let it happen. Well, history teaches otherwise. God shows otherwise. He used 300 men who were vigilant and aware. They didn't even draw swords. They blew some shofars and broke some pots. And it resulted in the destruction of an oppressor, the Midianites. We see this in, in, in Judges 7 and 8. I love something that happens in chapter 7, verse 22. And the 300, this is the 300 aware, blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bet Shittah in Zerarath and to the border of Abel Meloha or Mahola unto Tabah. God set the Midianites against each other and they destroyed themselves. That's what God does to the wicked. Time and time again in Israel's history, her enemies' swords were set upon one another. Do you not realize that the same thing is happening here in America? If we're aware, we'll see that it's not Republican good, Democrat bad. It's the wicked turning their swords one upon another. And with each passing day, I don't believe the president's the great deliverer. I believe he's just part of this judgment. This president was elected. Without him, this nation wouldn't be turned against itself like it would have been otherwise. Sometimes I wonder if we, I hate to say this, but I praise God I don't have to look at that witch on the TV every day, but would we be so asleep in this country if we had a wicked person like that in power? Would we be so blind as to what's happening at our southern border? Did you realize that like 1% of the population of Guatemala has entered this country illegally this year alone or since Trump became president. The numbers of people that have come into this country illegally 
since Trump became president is more than Clinton, Bush, and Obama put together. But, but he tweets that it's wrong. He tweets, he, he tweets that we're going to build the wall. He tweets this. He tweets that. When are you going to wake up and see that he tweets a lot of stuff, but he's not doing anything about it? It's all a big circus, my friends. And, and the wicked have drawn their swords one upon another. This is God's judgment on our country. We need to be those that sit back and call righteousness righteousness and affirm it and call wickedness wickedness, regardless of who it comes from. If a righteous man of God teaches something that's wrong, we rebuke it and call it what it is. If somebody, if a, if a messed up wicked individual acknowledges something as right and does right, we acknowledge that. But we're fools to, to Kool-Aid drink. Our president, we should pray for him. I pray he comes to Jesus. But at the end of the day, if he doesn't, he's compromised, as is any president. We really should have prayed more that Obama would come to Christ. How many of us are apt to pray for Trump, but we, we didn't take time to do it for Obama? Because we're all married to this our good, the bad type of thing. Christians, we have to be otherwise. We have to be otherwise. We have to step back and realize that God's way is to turn the wicked upon each other. And when this country further divides and, and dissolves and against itself, we need to be outside of that and be willing to declare righteousness, independent, completely independent of politics. What God did to Midian, we are seeing right now today in this country. And we deserve it. When Gideon conquered the Midianites, they chased them across the Jordan River and pursued their kings. And Gideon's 300 men, they didn't only sit there and blow the trumpets and break the glass. They pursued the people. And they were tired and they, they were faint. And they came into a city of Sukkoth and asked the men if they could please give them some refreshment. We've got Midian on the run. Will you help us? And the men of Sukkoth were like, who are you? Like, why should we believe that you've chased these people out? We're not going to help you out until you prove to us that you've conquered these kings. So they catch the kings, they kill them, they conquer them. Getting his men come back to this town. This is something else I love in the book of Judges. This would give us an answer about how we could handle some of these people in government. He came back uh, after the victory. And he went back to this town where these elders refused to help him provide refreshment for his men, his fellow countrymen. And it says... Verse 16, and he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. In other words, he asked for help. They refused to give it to him. When he got the victory, after they mocked him, he came back and he said he took briars and thorns and he taught the people. He gave them a taught them a lesson. He drugged the elders through the thorns and the briars to teach them a lesson about their mockery. And their foolishness. That's what, that's an answer right there. Somebody needs to take half the people in our U.S. Congress and almost all of these judges behind the bench, they need to take some thorns and briars and teach them, teach them a lesson. That's what needs to happen to these wicked people. The population needs to rise up with thorns and briars and teach them a lesson. See, we got answers in the Bible. The Bible tells us how to deal with these things. Teaching somebody with thorns and briars, I like it. 
I like it a lot. It reminds me of what happens in the Pali villages a lot. There's a plant over there. We would call it a stinging nettle. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a plant. If you barely touch it, it, it stings you. And the sting doesn't go away. It just stays there and it burns. And it takes some hours or a couple days to go away because it injects something. So what they used to do is take the troublemaker from town or the criminal and they just haul him outside of town and throw him into a bunch of that stuff. Or parents would break off a branch and, and smack their kids with it. It's real soft. So you just smack your kids with it on the rear end and they'll be, they'll be taught a lesson. So, you know, if we had some of those growing, that would be a great place to throw a politician or a judge. Gideon dies and the people don't follow the Lord. In fact, they take one of his children who was... Gideon had a snare in his last days. He had a lot of wives, same mistake Solomon made, a lot of kids. He had a concubine and had a son by him named Abimelech. And after Gideon died... Um, Abimelech went and killed all his brethren and, and, got, and convinced the men of Shechem to make him a king. So they made him this king. And he was, in essence, the first quote-unquote king in the nation of Israel. It didn't last very long. But as him and the men of Shechem were boasting and, and getting drunk on their power, uh, one of uh, his brethren, a young man, had actually hid himself and survived, one of the sons of Gideon. His name was Jotham. Jotham, Jotham came out while these men were celebrating their power gained through wickedness and he stood on Mount Gerizim which overlooked Shechem and he, he, he declared a parable and he talked about how the, the, the trees wanted one of, the, one of them to rule over them. They went to the olive tree, they went to the, the, the fig tree, they went to the vine and these mighty trees weren't interested. They weren't interested in ruling. You know, we've got our own business, we've got our own things to do, we're not interested in power. So they finally went to the bramble or the, or the, or the weed. or the, I think of a piece of a bramble. I think of like a tumbleweed that blows across the road in West Texas. And they said, why don't you rule over us? Bramble said, okay, I'll rule over you. And then it went on to talk about how fire came out from the bramble and fire came out from the trees that ruled over the bramble and they destroyed each other. So this, this guy, Jotham, stood on a mountaintop and basically rebuked these rulers and politicians and said, look, you people were so desperate for a king, you went and got a weed to rule over you. And you foolish people just go end up destroying each other. You deserve each other, is what he said. It's an interesting story. And of course, they do destroy each other. Uh, uh, Abimelech is at, is, is at the bottom of a tower with some people trying to throw it down, and a woman casts a piece of stone off the top and it breaks his skull. That's how he dies. But... These wicked people deserved each other and they destroyed each other. And when I think about that parable of the bramble and how God sent an evil spirit between the men of Shechem that made Abimelech king and Abimelech himself, I think about where we're at as a country today. Guys, we've got a bramble for a president. We really do. I voted for him. I don't know what I'll do in 2020. I'm not going to say what I'll do. I don't know. That's a long way away. But when I think of the, the history of our country and some of the great men that were used by God to found this country and to bring this country through difficult times, in comparison to those, what we have is a bramble. It's not an olive tree. It's not a vine. It's not a fig tree. When I think of great presidents, I think of men like Washington 
Lincoln. In the modern age, I think of a man like Harry Truman who was instrumental when all of the news media and all of his uh, uh, counseling in Washington warned him against recognizing Israel as a state. His response in a letter he wrote to his brother was, you know what, sometimes you just have to do what's right, tell everybody else to go to hell. That's fig tree. That's olive tree stuff. We don't have that today. We've got a bramble. We've got a bramble. And eventually, fire's going to come out from the bramble, and fire's going to come out from the people that put them in power, and they're going to destroy each other. It's just where we are as a nation. God sent an evil spirit. That's what God does. He sends evil spirit amongst the enemies of the Lord, and they destroy each other. That's what's going to happen in this country. We've got to step back and see it. We've got to look to Messiah, and our rest is in Messiah, not in an election, not in a law. I'm glad to see these laws being passed in states about abortion. North Carolina will never stand up and do something like that. But they're, they're, they're temporary because the people that pass them won't stand in the gap against a federal judge. So, you know, rejoice today, but tomorrow somebody will apologize for it. After Gideon, you had Tola, Jair, Jephthah. I like the story of Jephthah. He was a base man, a nobody, kind of a rough guy around the edges. Foolish with his mouth, for sure. You know, Jephthah had some zeal about serving the Lord, and he opened his mouth awful quickly. Jephthah told, the Lord said, I'll give you victory. Go out and deliver the people. And then Jephthah, instead of saying, okay, thus saith the Lord, and obeying, he said, all right, you know, he got all excited. Well, okay, God, if you give me the victory, the first thing that comes out of my door when I come home, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What was the first thing that came out of his door? His daughter. A lot of, a lot of Christians get hung up on this passage. They get hung up on Genesis 6 too. Oh, that would never, you know... A judge, God would never let them sacrifice their daughter. God would never let angels come down and have sex with men. You know, we're just, you know, that would never happen. And we're so emotional. Ask a Jew or a teacher of the Old Testament whether Genesis 6 is talking about the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain or is it talking about angels and human beings. Ask a Jew what's happening here in Judges. Oh, he just dedicated his daughter to the Lord and she went and served the Lord like, uh, like Samuel did. No, Jep- Jephthah said, I will offer whatever comes out to the other door as a burnt offering. And then we're told at the end of the story, he did with her according to his vow. <laughs> this guy sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering unto the Lord because he opened his big fat mouth. Even amidst the judges, there was foolishness. We ought to be careful what we say to the Lord. I think it was the, the, the preacher, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, said, be careful what you say when you go to the Lord. Keep your words few. God will hold us accountable for what we say to him. And this is a prime example of that. You know, the funny thing about Genesis 6 is those that refuse to believe that angels actually left their first estate, like Jude and Peter says, and actually came down and intermingled with daughters of men, even as Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh, as it says there in Jude, what those angels did was even as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's real funny because 
The sons of God, when you take the word son of God in the Old Testament and try to make it in a, a, a synonym for righteous people, you're doing something that a lot of people do with regard to a lot of doctrine in the New Testament. They take a New Testament understanding and try to project it back on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the sons of God were the angels. Men were sons of men. Ezekiel was a son of man. A son, a father gave birth to a son who was in his image. Only with the coming of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, could men be born again and have access to the Father so that as many as received him, then he gave the power to become the sons of God. Being a son of God in the sense of, of myself as a human being only comes through Jesus Christ. So to take what John says and try to project it back on the Old Testament is like what people do a lot of times with the Bible. We've got to be careful about that. It's like what we've done with the word marriage today. Oh, well, somebody's married. Because a couple of perverts like to get together and kiss on each other and do God knows what else. Or because they've adopted some kids that are all of a sudden married and have a family. Well, not according to God. And God ordained marriage. But um, it's funny in that whole story about Genesis 6. People get tripped up on that like they do in the story of Jephthah, because they don't want to believe God's word. They want to make God, they want to say what God should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't allow. And that's why we're so naive to the evil that's around us today. But in Genesis chapter 6, we're told, I've talked about this passage before, these are those fallen angels that are kept in prison under the river Euphrates that will be loosed from the abyss in the tribulation. They're kept there for a purpose, and it's the sixth uh, Trumpet judgment we've talked about. But we're told in, in uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So realize Adam was created by God. Adam was a son of God in that sense. Any Muslim or Jew that would say that God cannot have a son. Just say, well, who was Adam's father? Easy question. Who was Adam's father? Luke tells us in his genealogy he was the son of God. But Adam's son was in his image after his likeness, as was his son, his son, his son, and his son. I'm in the image of my father after his likeness. Okay? Through Jesus Christ, I'm a son of God. But apart from that, we're sons and daughters of men. So Genesis chapter 5 proves to us that what happened in 6 was wicked and evil. Wicked and evil. And God put a stop to it. What happened in, under Jephthah's judgeship? Wicked and evil. And he ate his words. It was sad. It was terrible. We, all, we shouldn't try to sanitize the Bible, guys. We don't need to make excuses for anything in this word. I'm sick and tired of people apologizing for things written in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. We don't need to apologize for it or sanitize it. It is what it says. We don't need to sanitize the millennium. Well, how can there be burnt sacrifices? It's the same people that don't believe Genesis 6 as it's written. They don't believe Judges, the story of Jephthah as is written. It's the same people that can't accept that people will live and have children in the millennium and die in the millennium, that there'll be sin that remains in the millennium, 
that there'll be a temple in the millennium where Jews offer up animal sacrifices. Can't accept that. Well, that can't happen because Jesus died on the cross. Why are we trying to send And therefore they spiritualize everything. I don't understand everything that's written there in the book of Ezekiel about the millennium. We're going to talk about some of it. But it is what it says. Why can't we just accept what God says? We don't need to sanitize it. God doesn't need us to defend it or sanitize it so more people will accept it. That's an error that the church has made. Church has made those errors in terms of Bible versions and Bible translations. Well, if we just translate the Bible into a version that's more easily understood, then people, more people will read it and more people will believe. Guys, that strategy has never, ever, ever worked in the history of the world with regard to the English Bible. God gave us an English Bible. He blessed it for 400 years, the King James. Then we figured out we had a better way. We started translating the Bible in all these different languages. And, of course, they're not translating it to make it easier to understand. You know, they got to make it different a little bit so they can get their copyrights and make their money. But, I mean, back when this society had one English Bible that was used, there was, a far lot, there was far more people that feared God, far less sin and wickedness. Now we got a Bible for every flavor. You can go in a bookstore. I mean, it's sad to see bookstores like Lifeway after so many years here in Hickory closing down. It's sad. It's sad, but it never accomplished what it was there to do, and that's why these works never endure. I mean, it was kind of like a shop. You know, uh, 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 you go in there and shop for whatever form of Christianity you think is best instead of the plain truth of God's Word. Mm-hmm. We don't need to sanitize the Scriptures. Jephthah's story is interesting. Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon were other judges. Then came Samson. Samson's story is simultaneous with the story of Samuel when you look at uh, Hebrew history. When you get into the book of 1 Samuel and you see what happens with the Ark of the Covenant and Eli the priest and his wicked sons. And then Israel is conquered and oppressed by the Philistines. We're told that Samson begins to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So the story of Samson actually takes place after the first chapters of 1 Samuel. So between the capturing of the Ark and Israel's victory over the Philistines at Mizpeh is the story of Samson. So Samson and Samuel's lives overlap. In fact, we're told that Samuel leads Israel against the Philistines at a final battle at Mizpeh, that the Philistines were gathered to come against Israel, and God gives them victory. That's where they set up that stone and call it Ebenezer. That old hymn, Mindy and I sang at that wedding, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, a testimony to God's victory. That gathering of the Philistines to attack Israel there in 1 Samuel, I believe was occasioned by Samson's final act of valor when he pushed down that temple and destroyed more Philistines in his death than he had in his life. And as a result, the the Philistines were angry and they invaded Israel. Samuel stood against them and there was victory. So those stories overlap. We often read and are familiar with the story of Samson and Delilah. And we think about, you know, Samson loved women. Samson did some foolish things as a judge. He knew they were foolish because he hid them from his parents when he was supposed to. He didn't tell his parents about killing that lion and getting honey out of it because his parents knew he was supposed to be consecrated as a Nazarite. He knew they wouldn't be happy about him going near a dead carcass. 
But Samson had a problem with women. And you know the story. Well, he meets this lady, Delilah, and she tries to convince him that if she, he'll just tell her his secret. And then he tells her different things that aren't true, and then suddenly he wakes up and the Philistines are upon him, and he easily subdues them. Well, then she just keeps whining and whining and whining, and finally he gives in. And we think to ourselves, well, how stupid are you? I mean, the woman's begged you and begged you. Every time you've told her something, you've woken up and you're attacked by the Philistines. Are you really that stupid that you would tell her the truth? Because you know that she's lying to you. You know she, she, the Philistines are going to attack you. He wasn't that stupid. Here's what Samson's problem was. And it's a problem we all have if we're not careful. Lots of preachers have this problem. Israel as a nation has this problem today. America as a nation has this problem today. Judges 16, verse 20. So she cut his hair. He finally told her. In verse 20, And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. Samson didn't believe God's word. Samson thought he did those things by his power. Okay, fine, I'll tell her. It's no big deal because I'll still wake up and just shake them off just like I've always done. I may as well tell her. Samson forgot that his strength came from the Lord and thought it was in himself. I'll just do what I've always done. He wasn't stupid. He's prideful. And there's a lesson in that for us. There's a lesson in that for us as a nation. We don't think we need the Lord. Israel in its modern state doesn't think it needs the Lord. The end is not pretty. Samson did humble himself. A lot of times godly men are brought down to nothing. And they learn humility. Because that's the grace of God in their lives. And Samson was used to the Lord before his hair even grew back out completely and threw down that temple and destroyed more Philistines in his death than in his life. And out of that came the great victory. What man meant for evil, God used for good. The same can be said of the Holocaust. A lot of interesting things in the book of Judges. I'd, consider, I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. I don't believe I'm off on a tangent here. I believe these things are related to what we're talking about because after the period of the Judges... God delivered his people and there was a period of rest. That's, an ultimate, that's a picture of what ultimately is going to happen. Not just for Israel, but for this earth. A judge will rise up. He will come. He will return with his saints. And then will come rest. And the rest is inseparable from the deliverance. The millennium is inseparable from the return of Christ. A literal millennium. We're not living in it now. It's coming. It's coming. The best verse in all of the book of Judges. And as you read about these judges, and at the end of Samson's life, it starts at chapter, I think it starts in chapter, uh, 18, no, chapter 17, to the end of the book, you have these stories about these judges that God has raised up. And then, at the end of the book, it goes back and it tells some stories that are happening in everyday life. And both of these stories are related to Bethlehem Judah. And then you get to the book of Ruth, which also has to do with Bethlehem Judah. 
And you see, we talk about wickedness in terms of political leaders and what's going on in society. But after the, the story of Samson, starting with Judges 17 to the end of the book, we see what was going on in everyday society. And the people in charge were wicked and fell into sin because the people at the bottom were wicked. Some of the stuff that went on in Israel during those days was wicked. The migration of the Danites, the Levite and his concubine, evil, evil, evil things. There's evil people in government because there's evil going on in homes around this country. Israel's history teaches us. But even in the midst of evil, some of the things that came out of Bethlehem at the end of Judges, wicked. But yet, amidst that, God was doing something in, in Bethlehem. Book of Ruth. Directly in the line of Messiah. It's an interesting trilogy about Bethlehem, Judah, and how even when some place is overcome with wicked, God's always at work behind the scenes. That's encouraging to us today. But at the end of Judges, I love this verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Today there's no king in America. No King Jesus. And every man does what's right in his own eyes. MAGA, make America great again through economic success, is man doing what's right in his own eyes. Abortion laws that make exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Man doing what is right in his own eyes. Mar uh, laws that allow homosexuals to get married. Man doing what's right in his own eyes. The Me Too movement. Immigration. Man doing what's right in his own eyes. Because we have no king anymore. We don't trust in God like our... We may as well take it off the money. People would scream and holler if we took in God we trust off the money. What I don't understand is these same atheist entities that sue these police departments and local governments for having Ten Commandments in their lawn and for having a Christian flag in their office. And then these police departments and local municipalities kowtow. They don't want to get sued, so they'll take it down. These same atheist organizations sue the federal government about the motto on the money about Moses on the front of the Supreme Court building, those cases never win. But the ones against local governments do. I, I don't understand. It's foolishness. We may as well, if we took in God we trust off the money, how many so-called Christians would stand up and just go crazy over that, scream and holler? But it's just words on a bill. It doesn't mean anything. Well, we may as well take it off the money because we don't believe it. We don't live like it. People are just as blind today as they were in the book of Judges. And we've got this example to teach us and we don't heed. So who are we to look at Israel in the mirror? We'd be, we need to look in the mirror before we look at Israel and boast. And boast against her sins. The book of Judges can teach us a lot. Those things just came to mind as I was studying for this chapter. And I know I've gotten off on a tangent, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to preach a little bit in, in Revelation. I've got a little time. Verses 4 through 6 highlight the millennial rest upon the earth. And the land had rest a thousand years. Not 40 years, not 20 years, a thousand years. The land has rest. 
as the book of Judges was supposed to be, as the Garden of Eden was supposed to be, these things are fulfilled here in Revelation 20. This is an aside in the context of the destruction of Satan. God's just given us a brief commentary, or the Holy Spirit's given us a brief commentary on what he's already written very plainly about in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit wants to write commentary on his own writings. He's free to do, to, do so. It's the only commentary out there that's inspired. The only biblical commentary that's inspired is the Holy Spirit's commentary in his word concerning his word. The rest of them you've got to be careful about. I would say... You're safer. If you want to read biblical commentaries, find those that were written before 1960. You're lots, on a lot safer ground there. Most of the stuff today, cotton candy, circus peanuts. It, doesn't ha it tastes good. It's sweet. But it doesn't have anything that sticks with you. It's fluff. Go back to the old stuff. I had the privilege of inheriting a lot of old books from a friend of the family. I don't have anywhere to put them now, so I cycle some in and out. Most of them are in Gigi's attic. But there's some good commentaries in there that you can't get anymore, and I praise God for that. That's where some of the things, these things I teach, you know, some of these things come from reading that stuff. The character of the millennium, a thousand years, six times. It comes, we would do well to remember this, God's kingdom comes on God's terms, not on man's terms. It comes in God's time, not ushered in by man. Here's the problem with those that deny a literal reign of Christ. Thrones and judgment. The saints living and reigning with Christ a thousand years. Is they all make the same mistake. This is Catholic teaching. This is actually Jewish teaching. The reformers, and yes, we Southern Baptists have been guilty of making the same mistake. We've all erred in thinking that these things come through our efforts and not through God on His timing. Jews even today say that Messiah will come after the earth has been prepared for Him. Religious Jews today say we've got to do good. We as a society got to follow the Lord. We have to do right and follow the law. Then and only then will Messiah come. Where do you think the Catholics got that from? We've got to build up God's kingdom here on earth. We've got to usher it in through programs, through bringing people into Holy Mother Church. Then God's kingdom will come. That's post-millennialism. We, righteousness grows, we conquer the world, bring in the kingdom, and then it comes. Catholic teaching comes from Augustine, the father of corrupt theology. Yeah, Augustine said some good things, but he said a lot of things that are corrupt, and people latch on to that. The reformers, you know, they say that the reformers, a lot of the reformers came out of the Catholic church, but not all of the Catholic church came out of them held on to some of that bad doctrine. They held the teachers instead of the Word of God. But they did one thing. They made the Bible available for the common man so man could look at it for himself and decide for himself. That was the great work of the Reformers that people don't even talk about anymore, how they were used by God to translate the Scriptures and to make them available so their teachings could be tested by the common man. Southern Baptists. How many of you... I sat through the missionary training when my wife and I were part of... Uh, the IMB, I've, I've listened in the missions classes, 
And how many times in a Southern Baptist context have I listened to them go to Matthew 24, 14. This is a famous passage in, 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 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse about the last days. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So guys, we've got to go out and witness. We've got to witness to the last person. Then the end will come. Then the kingdom will come. So in other words, the coming of this kingdom is dependent upon our ability to go out and preach the gospel unto the whole world. Well, first of all, Jesus is talking about the gospel of the kingdom. Remember the four forms of the gospel we talked about? The gospel, the good news that a kingdom is coming in which there will be a literal king fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be preached first to all the world and then the, then the end would come. Well, if we read Revelation, we know that after the church is raptured out, that God has witnesses of the people of Israel, 144,000, that go and preach and there's a host of Gentiles, the tribulation saints that are saved, they're referenced here in Revelation 20, verse 4 as well. And they're the fruits of that last ministry. It's the Jews that finish this preaching of the gospel, not the church. If you believe that Matthew 24, 14 is telling you to go out and witness because it might be the last person, then you haven't read the book of Revelation. You've ripped that out of context. And you're making God's kingdom, which comes on his terms, come on yours. You're making it about man. We Baptists have done the same thing. We need to be careful. John said, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. In this millennium that's encapsulated here, John sees two companies of people that are involved in millennial government. You have the king, Jesus. He comes back, chapter 19. Here you have two companies that are involved. Thrones and those that sat upon them. That's the church. Judgment was given to them. The word judgment there is the Greek word that has a connotation of, of vengeance, condemnation, punishment. The church is used to mete out judgment in a position of ruling and reigning during the millennium. The scriptures talk about this in some other places. Luke 22 is very interesting in a discussion that Jesus says to the disciples at the Last Supper. I'm not going to get in there. I'll do that next week. The thrones and those that sat upon them are the harvest of what's referred to a few verses later of the first resurrection. Then you have, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. So you have a second company, those that were beheaded. These are the tribulation saints, the gleanings of the first resurrection. When you talk about fruit, you have the first fruits, you have the harvest and the gleanings, that which comes at the end. The first fruits of the resurrection were the Old Testament saints. We see this referred to when Jesus rose from the dead. Then you have the harvest, which is the church, Jew and Gentile together. And then you have the gleanings, which are the tribulation saints, Jew and Gentile together. 
So we have two companies that reign with Christ and have a purpose in the millennium, a governmental purpose. The church, which judgment is giving to them, and then we have the tribulation saints who, have, who perform works of service. This is a literal kingdom where we'll have literal responsibilities. I want to talk about some of those responsibilities next time because we can go to Luke and Corinthians and Jude and it talks a little bit about this. I would say the church has judicial authority. In the millennium, the tribulation saints have executive authority. That is the first resurrection. That is those that have resurrection bodies and have been delivered from the very presence of sin within themselves. They're exercising judicial and executive authority over people that remain. There are four types of people that survive the coming of Christ and live on to endure during the millennium, and these have children. And it's from these unregenerated people that the rebellion comes at the end. But we live and reign. We are resurrected. The church and the tribulation saints are resurrected. The first resurrection. Blessed are those that have a part in the first resurrection. There was one thing I wanted to um, highlight real quick. Okay. I'll end with this. I want to end on a gospel note. These tribulation saints were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. That's going to be a form of punishment in the tribulation. I don't know what that means. Some people look at that and they react. Oh, that must mean the Antichrist is a Muslim and Muslims will be controlling the world. I've heard that stupidity out of people's mouths. That's called reactionary reading of the scriptures. They react with exaggeration because of something that's going on in their little world. And they don't think their world's any bigger than what goes on around them. Just because people are beheaded doesn't mean Muslims are in control of the world. I don't see any place for Islam in the tribulation. I believe it's destroyed, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But the punishment for the witnesses of Christ during the, during the tribulation is beheading. They're beheaded. These are the martyrs we've already seen in Revelation, the ones crying for vengeance. Notice here why they were beheaded, for the witness of Jesus. If it stopped there, it would be fine, but it doesn't. For the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Guys, you can't separate the witness of Jesus from the Bible. Those that are a witness for Jesus in the biblical sense are a witness for the word of God. They don't sanitize the scriptures. They don't make apologies for it. They don't try to explain it away with something that's more palatable. A witness for Jesus is a witness for the word of God. That's why I say very boldly, I didn't say it, a Jew actually, a Jewish believer said this to me, but he's, he's right. There's no such thing as a Bible-believing Jew who rejects Jesus as Messiah. No such thing. Not a single religious rabbi who's rejected Jesus as a Bible-believing Jew. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a Bible-believing Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, who says homosexuality is okay. In my opinion, there's no such thing as a Bible-believing Christian who thinks it's okay to murder an unborn child if that child is the product of rape or incest. You're not a Bible-believer. 
You may be a Christian. You may be born again, but you're not a Bible believer. You need to get educated out of your ignorance. No such thing. These tribulation saints who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God were Bible bigots. I'm a bigot. I admit it. I'm a bigot. Call me a bigot. I don't care. I am a bigot. I'm a Bible bigot. Those are the words of John Wesley. John Wesley said, I'm a Bible bigot. I make it the authority in all things, all matters of life and practice. Let him call us that. I'm a Bible bigot. My testimony of Jesus comes from the word of God, and I make no apology for this. And this is the testimony of those that rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. Let it be ours. Let it be ours. I'll end there today. Uh, I didn't really exegete much here. There's still some things to be said for verse 4. And then we're going to look at the first resurrection and how it differs from the second resurrection. There's two resurrections and there's two deaths. Many of us will experience the first death. But if, we have, if we're part of the first resurrection, we will never see the second death. Some of us won't experience the first death if we're alive and remain when Christ comes for his church. But there's a second resurrection. Blessed are those who only know the first death and know the, second, and know the first resurrection. Because for those who know the second resurrection and the second death, there's no hope. The second resurrection is not a good thing. We're going to see it at the end of chapter 20. We're going to see what it looks like for all of eternity in Isaiah 66. Anybody have any questions? Again, we didn't proceed very far. Uh, I'm hoping we can get to the end of chapter 20. But there's some good things in the Old Testament about the millennium. And uh, I think they're worth looking at because nobody teaches on this anymore. Nobody does. But at the end of the day... We believe in a Messiah. We believe Jesus came. He suffered. He died and was buried. He rose from the dead. And he's coming again to make right all that's been done wrong. And when he does, the earth will have her Sabbath rest. We're waiting for rest, guys. We need rest. We need that Canaan rest. We need that millennial rest. Even the creature is groaning for it, and it's coming. And we can be prepared for that by resting in the Lord today. And guys, when all of this stuff is falling around us, when we get so discouraged and mad at Trump when he does something foolish, and we're so temporarily thankful when he seems to say or do something good, we get stressed out. We need to rest in the Lord. Rest in the one who's going to make it right. Hope for the best here, but rest in the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. There's so much we can learn from it, even in some of those spurious Old Testament books and the stories of Israel and difficult times when she turned away from the Lord. There's things you could teach us that are like reading a newspaper today that directly apply to what we see and hear all around us. Lord, we want to support righteousness in our government and in our society. We want to speak out against unrighteousness And Lord, may we be like you, not a respecter of persons, to call righteousness righteousness and evil evil, not to mix it up like man has done, calling good evil and evil good. 
Lord, help us to hold those in our lives accountable, to warn the wicked, to be watchmen, faithful watchmen that love them enough to warn them and to preach Jesus. May we be those who have a testimony, not just of Jesus, but of the word of God. And if you call us, Lord, to give our lives for that, may we be obedient and find grace. Please come quickly, Lord. We long for that rest, that rest when we will rule and reign with you for a thousand years. Bless our food and our fellowship this morning, God, and uh, strengthen us thereby as you've strengthened our spirits through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.